Well, blessings, good morning, and happy Father's Day to all the dads and grandpas, and maybe even if there's a great-grandfather out there. You know, Father's Day doesn't get uh, nearly the respect that I think it deserves. It, Mother's Day is like always special. Father's Day is kind of like the Rodney Dangerfield of, uh, you know, special days. And even in our church, you know, for a number of years now, we go out of our way to honor moms. We've been having like this tradition that we do the children's ministry at every service. They have flowers for all the moms and grandmas. And, and you know, dads get nothing. We get nothing. Well, that's changing this year. We are going to have something available for every dad and grandpa. This is our own dad's root beer, okay? And on your way out, and this is not, and this is not just any size, I'll tell you this right now. This is called the big daddy size. So on your way out, if you're a dad, you know what? Get yourself this nice size root beer and take it home with you. Yeah! Yeah! <laughs> So, you know, this is the uh, last of the uh, Future Life series I'm going to be sharing here. This message is, is kind of been the capstone. It's going to be the capstone of what has been a journey we've been on since Easter. We've been talking about how the future life that Jesus talked about is a promise that should Im impact our present life. And so we, we're going to sit with that some more. But one of the things that we're going to be doing is we're going to be next week we'll transition into an entirely new series, a summer series that we're going to move into. And I'm looking forward to sharing around that. But... But I want us to just really be able to focus our attention on this and to be able to just get the full benefit of closing this out well, because Jesus had some amazing things to say that are so relevant for us, so meaningful, so profound, and at some level, uh, majestic and, and expansive. And so I want us to, to sit together, hear this, learn from it, and hopefully be inspired to want to honor God better in our lives because of what we're sharing. So let me go ahead and pray, ask this blessing. And Lord, I thank you for your blessing over, over our time together. And I, I want to um, welcome your, your goodness and your grace among us. And this is an opening of our day. We've come to, to open up our hearts to you as best as we can. And I know that all of us, like I always like to say it because it's so true, Lord, is that we all have different areas that we're struggling with. And some of us are brand new in our faith. Some of us um, have been following you for a long time. And there are different challenges in both places and, and opportunities. Others of us, we don't even be there yet. We're just we're like, we're just starting to get close to thinking about opening up our heart to you. And I just pray wherever we are that you would meet us. And not only that, you would meet us in the area of our life where we most need it. And um, speak to us around that. So we just, we just welcome you among us. Pray for your goodness and grace in Jesus' name. Amen, Lord. Amen. So I've given this message the title, The End of the World and New Beginning. So it's quite a big statement there. All right. Uh, I'm going to pick up in verses 17 and 18. These are the words of Jesus. He's talking to the disciples. Disciples were his uh, groomed team that he had been working with for a number of years, three. And he had been... If I can say it this way, even though he was their age, he was like a father to them, a father in the faith, certainly. And he knew that um, what he was about to say would not necessarily be fully comprehended, but he wanted them always to remember it. And uh, even now, we are going to see these words and how much they have to say to us. But just looking at verses 17 and 18, Jesus is speaking here in this upper room. 
He says, he is the Holy Spirit who leads into all truth. And the world cannot receive him because it isn't, it isn't looking for him and it doesn't recognize him, but you know him because he lives with you now and later he will be in you. No, I will not abandon you as orf orphans. I, I will come to you. Now again, remember these words that Jesus just say, says here. They were directed to his disciples in his final hours. And he knew what the following day was going to bring. He knew that the cross was looming, that, that hell was moving, that the next step would be the Garden of Gethsemane on the Mount of Olives, a place you can still go to today and get a real sense of what it must have been like. And he knew that he was about to be um, arrested, betrayed by one of his own, Judas, who'd already gone into the night. Um, he knew that the hour for which he was born was at hand. He would say it, he used that kind of a phrase, at hand, near. When, again, I remember, uh, I like to remind us that whenever Jesus, you read the Gospels, he's always saying the kingdom of God is at hand. My hour is at hand. It's like the hand, it's right here, it's right in front of me, it's now. And uh, he understood that. And, and again, uh, he understood what that was going to mean. It, it was going to mean separation from the Father. It was going to mean an experience he had never had as he would bear the weight of a lost world. It, it, it would mean the walk of utter humiliation. Uh, we might even say degradation. He, he would be uh, made to suffer. And the beautiful one would be marred beyond the point where some said that he could even be recognized it was going to be very bad. And knowing that, he started to share with them things that they were going to be struggling, as we can see here, we, and we've been looking at, they were struggling to comprehend what he was sharing. And in the middle of his sharing, he's actually interrupted uh, with a question, if I can say it that way, three times. We've looked at each one of those interruption questions. The first one had to do when, when he was talking about going and um, it was by Peter who said, well, where are you going and why can't I follow you? We talked about that. Not too far after that, Jesus starts speaking again and then Thomas is the one that basically raises his hands and he says, you know, Lord, we have no idea where you're going, so how, how, how can we know the way? And then, of course, Jesus responds to that in the sixth verse of John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And then behind that, after that soaring declaration, which really challenges us to think about who he said he was, Philip, with the utmost sincerity, asked the next question, well, then show us the Father. That, and and, that, and that, would, that would actually satisfy us. And, of course, Jesus, after gently admonishing Philip, you know, how long have I been with you, Philip? He proceeds to share a short teaching on our need for faith, on the power of submitted prayer, and then rather mysteriously, if I can use that phrase, on the coming of a helper. He called him an advocate, a comforter. He talked about the coming of one that he referred to as the Holy Spirit. And we see this. Let's pick back up with what he says, verse 19. He says, soon, listen, again, he's talking to the disciples, soon the world will no longer see me. Watch how he's referring to his death and resurrection. But you will see me. And since I live, you will also live. And when I am raised to life again, you will know that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. Now, again, what Jesus is saying here is that death, number one, is not going to hold me. I'm going to rise. That's an absolute declaration of what's going to happen. Not only does it mean, he says, that... that 
because of me living again, you're going to live again. But because I, you know, that because I live, you will also live. That's, a, that's an amazing promise. But he also says in that statement, but there's more than just that that's happening. Not only is this about more, this is more than even just about the future life. It's also about a change that is coming in the present life. Because of what I'm about to do, walk through, because of what is about to happen, my rising is going to mean also the possibility of a new kind of life with God in the now as well that will play itself out into the future, but it's going to change the present reality. It's like he's saying, listen, a new era is about to begin. Everything is changing. I know it may not look like it. In fact, I know that it may not even be evident right away. But if you can see what I can see, hell and death are about to be defeated. Later on, the Apostle Paul, who had himself been at one point a fierce opponent and disbeliever of Jesus, but a man who had come to faith, a radical, a radical moment of conversion in his life, where he met, he said, the risen Jesus as one born out of due season. He would write to a church, to a group of believers in a church at Corinth in the, what is called the great resurrect, resurrection chapter of the, of the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 15. And he would say these words. Watch how these words beautifully mesh together with what Jesus said. I know it's a, a pretty lengthy passage, but I wanted us to see it. He says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. He is the first of a great harvest of all who have died. Look at this. So you see, just as death came into this world through a man, now the resurrection from the dead has begun through another man. Just as everyone dies because we all belong to Adam, we're members of the human race, everyone who belongs to Christ will be given new life. And then towards the end of the chapter, he's going he's gonna to declare triumphantly that, you know, death is swallowed up into victory. And he'll make this great rhetorical statement, oh, death, where is your victory? And oh, grave, oh, death, where is your sting? It's gone. It's been swallowed up in Christ Jesus. Now, that, again, is connecting beautifully with what Jesus says is about to happen. And that's part of what Jesus is alluding to right here in John 14, that the universe as we know it is about to change, that eternity is about to be altered, that the future life is being secured, and it won't look like it initially, you guys. It's almost like he's saying this. In fact, what it's going to look like, it's going to look like total defeat. It's going to look so bad that you're going to even forget the words that I'm saying right now. But I want you to remember this, essentially. It's what he's saying. This is the great reversal. What looks like a defeat is actually the victory. And what looks like the end is actually just the beginning. And I'm about to walk into this. And it's like he's saying, again, remember, not only will you live because I live, this life will not be all there is, but you will have an entirely new way of interacting with God. Notice how Jesus expands this to a third level. Because look what he says in verse 20. Go back to it one more time. When I am raised to life again, look at what Jesus says. You will know that I am in my Father, there's one. You are in me, there's two. And I am in you, three. What he's saying is, when, because of my rising, 
uh, just no longer is it going to be just the Father in me and I in my Father, which is what he says in verse 10. He says, because of what I'm about to do after I am raised, you will know that I am in my Father and you are in me and I am in you. Now it's almost like we are brought into this. He's saying what he is really getting at is there's an aspect of fellowship and relationship with God that has never before been possible. But because of what I am about to do, the sacrifice that I am giving of myself, this creates the possibility for a new relationship with God that has never before been possible. Do you understand? And of course, they, they didn't understand. And we know because watch the final question that is, there's one more question that follows. We mentioned the first three. There's one more given. One more interruption, as it were, by one of the disciples. This one is, in the scripture, they call him Judas. There were two Judases, one who was sometimes known as Judas, not Iscariot, which is an interesting way to be known as, all right? Also known as slash Thaddeus. And in this particular verse, um, verse 21, look what it says. Judas, there it is, not Judas Iscariot, but the other disciple with that name, the name of Judas, said to him, Lord, okay, that's, that is amazing. Um, Lord, I have a question. And if you look at the question, it's actually a pretty good question. It's a question that I, I think I would have, if I had enough courage, would have asked myself. Lord, okay, um, why are you going to reveal yourself only to us? Explain to me this, because I'm not getting, and not like to the world at large. Like, why don't you, like, when you rise, when you reveal yourself, why don't you do it in, in this public way, in a global way? Let everyone know who you are. Reveal yourself. That would be great. And Philip's going, yeah, that would be, right? Show us the Father. It's the same mentality. They're gonna, that's going to be sitting with them even later. Now, are you, when Jesus rises, are you going to now restore Israel? Are you now going to throw down the Romans? Are we now going to set up the kingdom on earth? It was, all, it was always on their mind, temporal, earthbound. You know, and then the answer, which initially I looked at and I go, it doesn't even seem like an answer, right, to the question. Look at verse 23. To that question, are you gonna, why, when are you, why are you just going to reveal yourself to us? Why don't you reveal yourself to the whole world? Jesus replied, well, let me answer your question. All who love me will do what I say, and my Father will love them, and we will come and make our home with each of them to which I'm assuming Judas Thaddeus would have raised his hand and said, Lord, should I repeat the question that I just asked? Because like that is totally not related to what I just asked you about. I asked you about how are you going to reveal yourself, not just to us, but to the whole world. And then you told us basically what you already told us earlier in verse 21, all who love me will do what I say. My father will love them and we will come and make our home with each of them. I appreciate that's a great promise, but that's really not the question that I was asking. And I would like to know that. And Jesus would say, if he was going along with this, he would say, actually, I did answer your question. You did? Yes, I did. How? What do you mean? And, you know, for many years I've read this. I don't think I really appreciated what Jesus was getting at. But I'm going to tell you this. God's ways are not our ways. You know what he's saying, essentially? Listen, I am going to reveal myself to the world. You ask me, why don't I reveal myself to the world? I am going to. But not the way 
that you are suggesting, at least not yet. There will be a day for that, but that's not the way I'm revealing myself to this world. The way that I'm going to reveal myself now is I'm going to reveal myself through all of those in whom we live and dwell. Look what he's saying. My Father will love them. We will come and make our home with each of them. In other words, you and all who love and obey me, you are my revelation. You are my living announcements. The reality of my presence in your life is the declaration of the world of who I am. That's a, that is a powerful, it's, it's amazing. And then Jesus, watch what he does. He not only, he, he then shifts into something that I have always been just so blessed by, by jumping down to verse 27. He says, listen to me, I am leaving you with a gift. The gift that I'm leaving you with, it's, it's a peace of mind. Look at verse 20, I'm in peace of mind and heart. And the peace that I give, it's a gift that actually the world cannot give. It, it, it cannot be obtained any other way. It, it's different. It's the peace that I want to give you. So don't be troubled and don't be afraid. And remember what I told you. Remember what I told you. I, I am going away, but I will come back to you again. And if you really love me, you would be happy that I am going to the Father, who is even greater than I am. And I have, I have, I have told you these things before they happen. I have, so that you will believe. You will, when they do happen, you will believe. And it's almost like he then with great, and then he shifts with like this, like with majesty, and he declares, and I just absolutely love this. And it's almost like he shifts the conversation. Like, can you imagine this moment where Jesus has just got through saying, then, if you really saw what God was doing, you would rejoice at it. And then he shifts and he turns it. And he says, as it were, in verse 30, you know, after he's already, you know stated what God is doing and how amazing it is. And, I, and again, I just love verse 30. I always have. He says to them, listen, I don't have much more time to talk to you because the ruler of this world is approaching. And then this statement, and he has no power over me. And the older version says, and he has nothing in me. Jesus just finishes talking about things profound and, and about, again, majestic and expansive. And then he turns to them and he says, he's coming for me, but he has nothing in me. And, what, and the, old, the older version says that, that exact phrase, he has nothing in me. And by the way, no one else could ever make such a claim like that because what Jesus was essentially saying is there is no crack. There is no breach in this wall. There is no sin or contradiction that he can exploit in this moment. It's powerful. Verse 31, but I will do. He has nothing in me. There is nothing that will move me from the path that I have committed myself to. But I will do what the Father requires of me. You want to talk about what sacrifice looks like. I will do what the Father requires of me so that the world may know, that the world will know that I love the Father. 
Watch what I'm about to do. He's coming for me. He has the, the enemy has, he's coming. He has nothing in me. But what I'm about to do, I do not just for you. I am doing this because I love the Father. I love to do the will of the Father. And then the humanness come. Come, let us be going. And they leave the room. And into it, Jesus walks with utter courage into that moment. Just absolutely the moment where everything's going to change, he walks right into it. Not away, into it. That's awesome. Now remember, the future was altered because of what Jesus did. Hell and death, from, from that point on, does not have to be the final word. Heaven and life are if we're willing to accept this gift. But in between the now and the then, in between the present and the future that Jesus has secured to those who would receive him, he says, there are things that I want you to think about, and he alluded to them, and I want us to wrestle with them in the minutes that we have left. And the first one is pretty clear, I think. I'm going to stick it up there. It's called, it's what I'm saying is, in this life, in this space between the present and the future, you and I are invited to live in his peace, untroubled and unafraid. This is a fitting way of embracing what Jesus taught us, that we are invited to welcome his peace into our very souls that there are many things outwardly and even inwardly, externally and internally, publicly and personally, that will disturb and corrupt our peace, fill us with anxiety. Maybe some of us are struggling with that even now. Many things that can make us afraid. They were afraid because Jesus was saying things that they didn't understand. And Jesus was saying, do not let fear begin to define you. Do not let this anxiety and this stress over what is about to happen, that even though it sounds so bad, I need you to trust me. I need you to let my peace penetrate your life in a way that I would love to settle you at both heart and soul. And I thought about all the ways in which sometimes our fears show up. You know, I, when we're afraid of something or when we're feeling a lot of pressure, we're very much filled with anxiety and worry. Uh, a lot of times that's when we're prone to do reckless things. Some of us all process that differently. Uh, you know, um, sometimes we might find ourselves in situations where it, we begin to panic. We, we get very reckless because we're afraid. We've got to solve this problem now. And if I don't do something now, so the idea of trusting God goes out the window. The idea of being patient and allowing this thing to play itself out is because the real, when we're afraid, the temptation at frequently is to begin to find, I've got to figure this out on my own. I've got to solve this thing. I've got to do something. Now, that's understandable, but that can get us into trouble. Uh, some of us, when we're really afraid or we're under a lot of stress, you know what happens is we start to get angry. I saw this, you know, when I was kind of growing up, I, I, I saw, you know, one of the things I noticed is when, when someone I, I loved it and was in my life, an authority figure in my life, when, they would, get, when they, would, they would get angry, it was usually because they were afraid. And it would come out in a very destructive way. And I would always think, why are you doing that? But as I got older, I began to understand it. it's because he was afraid. And some of us, when we're, when we're afraid of things, you know, our way is not to act out. It's not to lash out. It's not to get angry. It's not to get physical. It's not to panic. We, we, we actually, we do the exact opposite. We start, to, we start to disengage. We start to wall ourselves off in a negative way. We start to isolate. We start to pull back. We start to shrink our world. And when that happens, we begin to cut ourselves often 
away from the mechanisms of grace that God has set up as a means of pouring life back into us at critical times. That's why the exact opposite thing we should be doing at critical times when we are feeling fearful or filled with anxiety is pull ourselves away from the people that God's placed into our lives. That's the exact time to be as open as we can in a safe way. I'll take it one more step further. Some of us, when we do, when we do find ourselves in these places, we're either weary, anxious, afraid, we, we actually begin to become self-destructive. And I was talking to someone about this last night. That's when we can easily fall back into past ways of dealing with things. We start getting into self-destructive behavior. We can begin to lose ourselves in unhealthy places. We drop our guards. We lose ground, ground that takes days, weeks, months, years to obtain at a spiritual level. We give it up. That's not the, what the Lord wants. It's what he, he was trying to warn the disciples. Don't allow this fear and this terror and this anxiety and these questions to overwhelm your faith. What you need to do right now, listen to me. I know you cannot comprehend everything I'm saying, but I am telling you that God knows exactly what he's doing. I know what I'm doing. There is something that's about to happen that is going to change everything, and I mean for the good. But in the meantime, you need to trust me. You need to place your trust in me. You need to let my peace fill you right now. You need to let the life giver fill you with his life. That's what he's saying. Put this into my... You know, sometimes in the, in the ancient... I should say ancient, older generations of followers of Jesus, they used to actually, and some still do, they would, they would with their hands, they would say, I trust you, Lord. You know, I open up this, I give this to you and I receive your peace into my life. And sometimes when I'm really under an assault, that's the only way I can call it, at a spiritual, mental level, I can feel thoughts and, and, and just stuff happening in my mind. A lot of times, oh, I, just, I just like, you know, I just say, Lord, I just pray over my mind right now in the name of Jesus. Don't let these thoughts overwhelm me right now. I just want to trust you in this moment. Give me clear thinking. Don't let me get consumed in things that may not even be real. Teach me your way. Help me. Protect me. What I'm saying is in these moments, we need to trust him. He welcome, I welcome your peace. Of, you have given me peace of mind. God, you have not given me a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of soundness of mind. I claim your promise even now. You know, when we do that, then when we anchor ourselves in the Lord, and I'm not saying we do it perfectly because a lot of times we don't, we, but when we entrust our future to him and our present as well, we essentially become super strong. We become like, and I mean a good way, we become like a walled city, like a fortified city. How about that? A citadel that cannot be overwhelmed, a house that will not fall because it is built on a rock. Come what may, even the worst, we shall prevail. Why? Because our future is certain. It's like David said in the Psalms, Psalm 16:8, I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be moved. You see the power in that. Secondly, from what Jesus taught us, and I hope we see this, you and I need to live not only with his peace in our lives, untroubled and unafraid, but we also need to live as if we're going somewhere, that we're going into a future. Now, some of you may remember what this is. Yeah, I know. It's a book. I get that part, all right? I know that. No, I'm, this is actually a hymnal. People used to sing hymns. 
kind of being semi-funny right now, okay, about this. But when I grew up, we would sing hymns. There were no such thing. I was, even when I was a boy, I didn't even remember, they didn't even have an overhead. I remember when we forgot our first overhead in this church. I was just a boy, and they would slide a little plastic piece over, and it would flash up on that wall. And we would sing songs. It's a very different world now. But one of the things I recall when I was a boy singing hymns, and they would be very spirited ones. But as I started thinking back in my mind, I started thinking, you know, Lord, so many of those hymns had to do with your coming or this world is not my home. Um, you know, I, I started going through my mind, he's coming soon. You know, I'm on the way, the glory land way. <laughs> so kind of songs would start to say, you know, this world, this world is not my home. This world, this world is not my home. This world is not my resting place. This world, this world is not my home. Oh, sinner, won't you come with me and seek this land of liberty? Oh, please, but won't you tell me why you do not seek this home on high? This is sticking in my mind. I remember him. Oh, I want to see. I mean, okay. this is, what is this? What is this? This is walk down memory lane. Now, what I'm saying is that these songs, these hymns that they would sing, because they were an expression of a generation of people who had suffered greatly. They were written at by, many times by people who had seen great world wars and they had seen the worst of, of humanity. They had been through depressions. Um, they had watched many of their children die. They did not expect to live long themselves, um, the generations before that. So what happened is previous generations would often sing about the promise of future life. It meant a lot to them. Even in centuries before, followers of Jesus would set up little things to remind them that we're only passing through life as temporary. We tend to take certain things for granted that previous generations did not. But one of the things we're reminded of in Christ is never, ever stop rem reminding yourself that like Abraham, our father in the faith, we are always to be thinking of ourselves at some level, I'm talking about those who would follow Jesus, as pilgrims, as people on the way, as people who are going. What that means is when I'm going, when I know I'm not, this is not my permanent residence, I'm, and the close, I'm, I'm sort of always prepared. When I'm going somewhere, I'm prepared to move. And so my attachments and my choices are affected by that understanding that I am going. And so part of what we're saying, it's not an escapist thing. It's not about detaching from reality. It's not about being so heavenly minded that we're, you know, to use the overused phrase, no earthly good. What I'm actually saying is I think the challenge for us may be actually quite the opposite. I think maybe that was true in generations past. Oh, I just want to, you know, get to heaven, just get to heaven. But I think sometimes we don't think about that enough. I think we may forget the greatness of the promise and the reminder that we are to allow the reality of a promised future to impact the way we make our present decisions. But that actually is something we need to periodically seriously embrace, not just when we're sick or when we're having to deal with issues like death, but actually as we seek to live out our life, to live as one who is on the way, that we are followers of the way, the truth and the life, and we are on the way. And as people on the way, we are to make decisions, choices, challenge things in our lives because we are going somewhere. 
And that, and that is going to affect the way we process through our commitments, the way we architect our lives, the way we choose our values and priorities, all of that, the way we challenge our own heart is going to be affected by how we see ourselves. And that, and then the last way it'll be affected is by what I'm calling the third piece here, which is this. We're not just to live like, you know, we're his, you know, we're, we to live in his peace, unafraid and untroubled, live like we're going, but we're also to live as if we are his announcements. And for me, I love this because, again, I go back to what Jesus said when, he, when they said, why don't you reveal yourself to the world? He says, I'm about to, through you. And that's consistent with everything he said earlier. Let your light so shine before people, men, that they may see your good works, the goodness of your life. Glorify your Father in heaven. Be drawn to him because of the way in which you're living your life, that, that it shows the reality of God's presence in it, and it is attractive to others, or at least intriguing to others, causing them perhaps to open their heart to the message of Jesus. He's saying, as you are my announcement, you are my living announcement, you are my walking advertisement, represent me, the living me in you, the Father in me, me and the Father, the Father in you, I am in you, live in me. It's all about representing my heart. That's what he was saying. Live this way. How good is that? And then having loved them, he loved them unto the end. That's what love does. Love finishes. Love completes. Love doesn't quit. May, we, may the Lord fill us with that as well. I'm going to pray. I'm going to ask God to bless the time that we have left here. And our closing song is really connected to what we just said there. But, Lord, I, I want to ask you to just, again, let your word. You know, we just looked at your words. Oh, that's what we did. We sat with them. We considered them. Remind us of what faithfulness and courage truly looks like. And allow us, Lord, to represent you increasingly better. And I know that the public representation, Lord, always is a byproduct of what's going on inside. It's true, it, there can be hypocrisy, but that's not what we're talking about. At the end of the day, the fruit is connected to the root. And I pray that you would allow our roots to go deep. Deliver us, Lord. None of us are like you. You were perfect. There was no breach in your wall. We have weaknesses. We have areas of contradiction. We need your grace. We not only need you, we need your grace. Um, but we would be instruments to sing your song. And we want to sing it well, better. And so help us to do that, Lord. Help us to be a people who live with, with the sense of the future so that it impacts the present. This is what I ask, Lord. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen, Lord.